Okay, depression, here we go. Um, you know, it's funny. You're like, oh, you got to talk about depression after one of the most joyful evenings that we experience all year as a church. And I don't know, maybe that's the Holy Spirit's design. Maybe sometimes in order to break a cycle of depression, we got to get around some people with unbelievable joy. Maybe I tell my son this all the time. You want help? Get helpful. Maybe it's not just, you know, me, 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 me. Maybe sometimes if you want help, I tell my son this all the time. Canaan, you want help? Get helpful. Darn it, that's an ice cream. I said a name. I shouldn't have said a name. I have this son that, um, yeah, you want help? Get helpful. Get around people that, that need to be served. Serve somebody else, and it will open your eyes to a different dimension of joy. You'll start saying, I don't have it as bad as I thought I had it. My life is not as terrible as I thought my life was. I'm not as miserable as I thought my life was. I mean, we're raising two children with special needs, and yet we look at each other all of the time, and we say, my goodness, it could be worse. Thank you, Jesus, that you've been so gracious to us and so merciful to us in the midst of a lot of challenges that we have to face, yet it could always be worse. If you're, if you're stuck in a space where you think your life is the, the worst of all and it's, you have the most problems and the most challenges, the most difficult thing for you, you should, you should try to step into somebody else's world for a little bit, give you a little bit of a, of a perspective um, as we dive into depression, here's what I want to do. I want to read the mission of Jesus because I think it's really important for us to understand um, how Jesus would approach some of these things, right? Or how Jesus would approach darkness or captivity spiritually um, or sin or depravity or some of these things. Because what you get into when you start to, and listen, I'm the first to tell you I'm not a clinician. I am a doctor, but I am not that kind of doctor. I, I run in the lane of theology, but I will also tell you this, and I think Dr. Robert Smith, who's someone I'll quote often, he wrote the textbooks on Christian psychology, all of them. You go to undergraduate, the doctoral level degrees for psychology, you're reading Dr. Robert Smith. And he would say the same thing. Now he would say it in a way of like, Modern clinical psychology will treat symptoms or, you know, clinicians will treat symptoms and then they'll move to feelings, but very rarely do we get to the, the heart of the issue. I would say every ology ends in theology. Every ology ends in theology. Everything that you walk through and you deconstruct and you think about and you contemplate and everything else, it's going to end at this Every ology is going to lead you to theology. What do I believe about God? What does God believe about me? And how does that impact the rest of my life and my future afterlife? What do I believe about God? What does God believe about me? And how does that impact my life now and my life after I die? Every ology will lead you back to a theology where you have to know where you're at and what you're walking through. And as we, as we enter into the space of depression, I want to start with the mission of Jesus. Two different times he quotes it. One, he's quoting from Isaiah. The other, he is shouting at a crowd, at a crowd as he approaches his death, burial, resurrection. Luke 4, 18 through 19, this is Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's a great spot to just, you know, maybe even a light one. If Tabitha were in here, she'd say amen. I know she would. Maybe just a little one there. John 12, 44 through 50. Jesus shouted 
to the crowds. Understand that. This was not a casual whisper under your breath at a coffee shop. This was Jesus, crowd full of people, and here's what he's shouting. If you trust me, you are trusting not only in me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Jesus did not come to leave the lights off. Jesus did not come to leave people in darkness. Jesus did not come to leave people in brokenness. Jesus did not come to leave people in depravity. I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey, for I have come to save the world, not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. Verse 49, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Verse 50, and I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. This is really important as we enter into this because one of the main taglines, in fact, the Medium wrote an article a year ago on secular psychology and the danger of this statement. I'm, I'm about to challenge really quickly, but here's what we need to see. When, when people are in sin, in depravity, in darkness, Jesus never affirms that. He brings life he brings love, he brings grace, he brings mercy, he brings purpose, he brings salvation, he brings hope, he brings power, but he never brings affirmation. In other words, he never utters anything close to it's okay to not be okay. Nowhere, you can't even, you can't find a translation to manipulate into changing any of the red words of Jesus to say anything remotely close to it's okay to not be okay. I think it's one of the most unloving things we could say to a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling in the tension and the pain and the darkness of depression to be like, oh, you're okay. It's okay to not be okay. No, it's not. I love you where you're at. I see you where you're at. I want to be compassionate with where you're at. I want to have mercy with where you're at. And I want, by God's grace, to meet you there. But I want to walk you out of that. This whole thing of like, it's okay to not be okay. No, it's not. That's not okay. Do you see people approaching Jesus in darkness and Jesus being like, it's okay, stay there. It's all right, rest in that. Live in that pain. Live in that, no, it said he came to turn the lights on. He came to bring hope. He came to bring life. Here, let me run you through, and this is where for me the challenge with a season like this is, because like I said, and I am all for, um, I am all for everything that would fall under the clinical side of whether it's psychology or medication or psychiatrics or anything like that. I'm all for it. I'm, I'm not against that. I'm for it. I'm just saying it doesn't end there. You gotta take medication, take medication, but I've never found a pill that heals your soul. Like, I'm all for it. If you got to do it, do it. And I'll cheer you on. I'll pray with you. But it, there has to go. This is where we can become so clinical we stop being spiritual. 
We become so clinical, we stop being spiritual where there has to be more than just the spiritual stuff, right? There has to be, I, I, I'm telling you, like, here's the theological challenge to me as a believer in Jesus. The moment we start believing there has to be more than just this, we minimize this completely to being utterly worthless. Do I believe all of your questions are going to be answered when it relates to depression in one sermon? No, no. But do I also believe that they could be answered in one answer who is Jesus Christ? Yes, of course, the one who came to save the world, the hope of the world, who brought salvation. Let's start there, right? So we have seven people in scripture who were depressed and, and some of this will be content for next week but it's, it's gonna blend together. Let's start with David. David was troubled and battled deep despair in a number of Psalms he uses the word for despair that is utterly desolate. It is a field that can no longer grow any sort of fruit and no animal can eat from it. In other words, he's saying my life is a completely dead and empty field and yet he writes the rest of the Psalms begging God to deliver him from it. Not saying I'm gonna stay in this field of despair, but he's saying, my Lord and my God, would you become my refuge and strength? Would you meet me in the midst of this? Elijah was discouraged and suicidal, ready to die. Wanted to take his life, 1 Kings chapter 19, and what does God do? First thing God says to him, get up. Stop sitting at that tree, get up. Elijah, it's time to get moving again. Sends a worm to kill the tree. So the tree falls and he tells him again, get up, it's time to get moving. You see this, this is the same God that called Elijah, same God that anointed Elijah, same God that made Elijah a prophet, same God that raised him up against the prophets of Baal and used him in a powerful way. He loves Elijah, his anointing is on Elijah. He meets Elijah, stooped under a tree, sitting by himself, ready to take his own life, but he doesn't let him stay there. He said, come on, it's time to get up. Come on, I know it's gonna take everything that you got, but give it everything that you got, and it's time for you to get up. You've sat back down again, now I'm gonna take the tree away so you won't even have any shade. It's time to get up. Another one. Jonah, twice, was depressed, fell into despair, utter despair. First time God calls him to go to Nineveh, he turns, runs the other way. They ask him, why is God coming against this ship? Jonah says, it's me, and instead of repenting, he says, kill me, throw me overboard. So what do they do? They throw him overboard, and what does God do? Literally rescues him with a fish. Swallows him up, spits him out, gives him another chance. He goes, he preaches to Nineveh, God rescues Nineveh, he's angry and depressed again because of it. He's like, I hated those people and I knew you'd be a good God to them. So he rolls into another depression and what does God do? He rebukes him. He says, what are you doing? Why are you acting this way again? He doesn't say, it's all right. I know you're mad. Stay there. He meets him there, but he calls him out of it. Job declared his life utterly hopeless. His words, not mine, Multiple times, start Job chapter seven. Job declares his whole life utterly hopeless, and yet what was the turning point for Job? Was not God's mercy. It was God's rebuke. Job 30 through 32, God comes to Job and says, who are you to question me? Who are you to question me? 
knock it off, and let's get back at it. Again, he meets him, but he doesn't leave him. He meets him, but he calls him out of it. I'm I'm not being harsh or minimizing you or glazing over your journey or gaslighting you or whatever it may be by telling you it's time to move out of it. I'm doing what God would do. I'm not going to leave you sitting there. I'm going to love you. I'm going to cheer you on. I'm going to encourage you. But I can't find a spot where God said, go ahead, stay there. It's all right. It's okay to be not okay. Just stay in it. Right? Let's keep going. Let's start with Moses. We're going to read Moses' story today. Moses was so fed up with the weight of the children of Israel, he wanted to die. He asked God to take his life. And yet, what does God do? We'll talk about it in point two. He meets the children of Israel and he gives them food. He feeds them. He shows up again to meet them. Jeremiah wishes he'd never been born. He says, God, I wish I would have never been born. The weeping prophet, Mr. Miserable, having to tell people who will not listen to him to turn their ways and they will not do it. And yet what does God speak through Jeremiah to the children of Israel, peak of their rebellion, middle of their captivity? For I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you, but plans to give you a hope and a future. Jesus was grieved to the point of death. Literally sweating blood, alone in a garden, saying, God, take this away. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Goes to the cross, dies, resurrected by the Holy Spirit, ascended to be with the Father. God didn't leave him there. Our theological response to anything that people are walking through where they are stuck in this dark, isolated, broken space is to enter in there with love, to enter in there with grace, to enter in there with mercy, to enter in there with compassion, but to grab a hold of them and do everything we can to pull them out of it. It's not to leave them stuck. We don't got time to process. We need to get out of this space. Like, I hear you, but I'm, I'm with you, and I'm not with you to just stay here. I'm with you to help you everything that I can do to get you where I believe God wants you. Let's go to that space. That's the response over and over and over again. From Old Testament to New Testament to Jesus himself, I'm not going to leave you here. Dr. Robert Smith who I read significantly last week, Um, like I told you, he wrote the Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference. Like this is on, this is a book, you take undergraduate psychology to doctoral level therapy, you are reading Dr. Robert Smith. The guy wrote all the textbooks, double PhDs, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. He defines depression better than, than anything else that I've seen. Here's how he defines depression. Don't get mad at me, get mad at him. He's the the expert. Depression is a debilitating mood or attitude of hopelessness, helplessness, or joylessness, which becomes a person's reason for not handling the most important issues of life. Interesting. Let me read it again. Depression is a debilitating mood or attitude of hopelessness, 
helplessness or joylessness? One guess what the three points are today, right? Hopelessness, helplessness, or joylessness, which becomes a person's reason for not handling the most important issues of life. That's where we're going to stay. Dr. Smith would then walk you through, in response to that mood of helplessness, hopelessness, or joylessness, people begin to act out of their thoughts and do and create feelings. He said, every feeling is a physiological response to a thought. You may not know what the thought is. You may not be able to place this, the thought. Nonetheless, every feeling, happy, sad, mad, joyful, all these things, are responses. They're, psych- they're, they're, they're physiological responses to thoughts. Out of those thoughts, we create feeling. Out of that feeling, we create actions, and then we call those symptoms. Sleeping all the time, not sleeping enough, overeating, not eating enough, brain fog, easy agitation, the nine symptoms uh, of depression that you'll read there. And he says, over and over, this is what we do. And so if we start with symptom, we never get to root. What did we say? Every ology ends in theology. So today, helplessness, hopelessness, joylessness, how do we combat those? How do we overcome hopelessness? Let's start here. Colossians 1, 4 through 6. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Verse 5, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have heard this expectation since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Listen to Paul, 1 Timothy 1.1. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior in Jesus Christ, who gives us Hope. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us why we have the scriptures. Why were these scriptures written? Paul says, Romans 15, 4, such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement. What does this do? Give us hope and give us encouragement. If you need a dose of hope today, you need a dose of your Bible today. If you need a dose of encouragement today, you need a dose of God's word today. And if you're only in this one or two days a week, don't tell me why you don't have any hope. You're you're answering it yourself. It's right here. You look at social media every day. You do things you want every day. You find time to work out four days a week, but you can get in here once a week. And this is the source of your hope and encouragement. And then we wonder why we're so messed up. Why, we, why we're so, everything's so distracting. Everything's such a, I, I've, I've told people this before. If you can go on your iPhone and you can pull up your screen time and you can look on your screen time and see how much time you spend on Instagram and if you're spending more time on Instagram than you are in God's word, you've answered your own problems. You don't need me. You just need to get in this right here. This is, this is it right here. Like This is our hope, and this is our encouragement, and this is where we have to rest our souls. There is significant research that the things we do first in the morning and the things we do last in the day form us and shape us the most over time. 
significant scientific research would, would weigh into this. I did a lot of this for my doctorate talking about spiritual formation. What we start our day with and what we finish our day with form us the most over time. So if we wake up and the first thing we do is get on Instagram and we start scrolling all kinds of junk and we, we insert that into our mind first thing and we go to sleep watching quasi-pornographic reality dating shows and then we wonder why on earth our relationships are dysfunctional, our hearts are anxious and our lives are depressed. Because we're forming ourselves with it. We're literally crafting our world with it. Paul is saying, you want hope? You want encouragement? It's in 66 books that sits in your nightstand. Find it, read it, digest it, live it, memorize it, quote it, post it on the walls in your home. Insert it into your heart and live it out every day of your life. Psalm 42 is a psalm on depression. Go read it. First, first four verses are, my life is freaking miserable. That's the Luke paraphrase version. It, I mean, it's, it's worse than that in, in other translations. It's like, my life is miserable. I am in deep despair. I am utterly and overwhelmingly depressed. And then we get to verse five, and he talks himself out of it. Listen to this. Psalm 42, verse five. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Exclamation point. I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. He does it again, verse 11. Rolls through it again. He says, why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, incredibly well-known, one of the greatest preachers of all time, had a significant battle with depression and in his own writings would say the one sentence that constantly changed the course of his depression was this right here, quoting Spurgeon, do not look to your hope but to Christ, the source of your hope. Man, I think that's significant. Do not look to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. I, I think, and this is in Christian, Christian community right now. I'm talking to believers. I think we place so much hope in the things of God that we miss placing our hope in God, and it leads us to a, a depression or an upset or a frustration that we can't figure out. In other words, marriage. The marriage covenant is a biblical covenant. I don't know why people who aren't following Jesus want to get married. It is, it is a biblical covenant representing God's relationship with his son. As I and the Father are one, so you are to become one. Man leaves his father and mother and they become one flesh, right? It is a biblical covenant, yet it is from God, but it is not the source of my hope. So the moment I start placing my hope in my marriage, I put an unfair expectation on Anna, and I put my hope in something that does not have the power to sustain me. Same thing with children. What does scripture call children? Gifts from the Lord. But if my hope is in my children, and my hope is in their future, and I'm living through them and trying to craft their lives in all of the ways that I missed out on as a kid. All of a sudden, I put an unfair expectation on my kids to bring me hope, and I put my hope in something that is going to run out. That's what Spurgeon is saying. Don't look to your hope. Look to the source of your hope. There's got to be something deeper than the things that you're hoping in now. We have to change the source of our hope. 
How do we battle hopelessness? By constantly, daily, evaluating the source of our hope and directing that to Jesus Christ our Lord. I am forever scarred when it comes to jumper cables. Anybody else? Jumper, I, I don't want it, man. I, look, if you're broke down in the parking lot and you and I are the last two vehicles in there, like my pastoral love and grace goes up to the point where you're like, hey, can I get a jump? I'm like, I don't have cables. I do. Okay, well, I'm busy. Got to go. Like, I'll call roadside assistance for you. But I'm not, I, so when I was like 14 years old, I worked at this place called JCGAA, Johnson County Girls Athletic Association. It was a, like 15 softball fields that were, you know, all this huge softball complex. And we had just got done taking out all the trash. I was driving a tractor. Y'all think I'm just nothing but skinny britches and no go, 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 right? But I'm driving this tractor, the bucket's full of like 25 bags of trash. We drive it to the dumpster, get to the dumpster, and I shut it off and I forgot the battery was dead. So when I shut it off, the tractor died. Dang it. So I call Bill, and, and Bill is, like, dangerous. I'm talking, like, like, severely, seriously dangerous. You all have friends like Bill. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Bill is, like, the type of guy who's priming carburetors with hairspray. Like, he's just like, how can I blow myself up today, right? And he thinks he's fixing everything. That's Bill. So Bill shows up, and he's like, hey, I got these. We got to jump it. Take those jumper cables. Put them on the battery of the tractor. Like, these cables are from the 30s. There's no black, no red. They're corroded. You can't tell what's what. I'm like, what goes on which one? Like, I don't know. Just throw it on there. We'll figure it out. So I'm like, you know, putting these on. You know, they, they like pop a little bit. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, this is just, ah. So I put him on there, and Bill's in the truck, and he's just, wah, 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 just revving on the truck, right? And he's like, hit it. I turn the key. The moment I turn the key, the battery on the tractor is sparking everywhere and the cables ignite into fire. Burns straight through the rubber coating. On, I mean, sears through it. That stuff is like sizzling off, boiling on the floor. All that is left is this, these metal cables that are sparking and the battery sparking and burning everywhere and Bill's getting out and he's screaming, take them off, take them off. And I'm like, I'm not touching that thing. Ain't no way. And so Bill's got this towel and he's like whacking them with a towel and he smacks them off the truck and then he smacks them off the tractor and the cables are literally sitting in between both vehicles sizzling. They're sizzling. Bill looks at me and he says, all right, put them back on again and try it the other way. <laughs> no! I'm not touching that because I don't know what I'm connecting to. And I'm connecting to it thinking it's going to give life, but it may just burn me up. Our hope is the same way. We have to constantly evaluate, what am I putting my hope in to give my soul life today? And it can't be the things that come from God. It has to be God himself has to be God himself. How do we fight hopelessness? By daily, constantly evaluating the source of our hope. Number two, helplessness. So Dr. Robert Smith said, number one, hopelessness. Number two, helplessness. Listen to Moses. And I, I don't want to, I, I will try to contextualize it to our day today, but I, I, want you, I don't want you to hear a man who's throwing a tantrum. I want you to hear a man who's contemplating suicide. It's very different. 
It's very different. Moses is not throwing a fit. Moses doesn't want to live anymore. Listen to this. Numbers 11, 10 through 17. Moses heard all the families, little context, children of Israel just came out of slavery, delivered by the Lord out of slavery of Egypt. Remember we did that sermon season, out of Egypt. What do they do the moment they get out of Egypt? Start complaining. We don't have enough food. I'm still hungry. At least in Egypt we had something to eat. Maybe we should go back and be slaves again in Egypt. They literally start complaining. An entire nation delivered from slavery by the Passover of the blood of a lamb straight through a sea that's been parted. And two days later, they're fussing over food. They're hungry. Moses heard all the family standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very agitated. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me this way? Your servant so harshly. Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? He's talking to God. Why would you do this to me? Why would you put these people on me? What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Verse 12. Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Verse 13, where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me, saying, give, meat, give us meat to eat. Verse 14, listen to Moses. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. I want you to hear Moses as a man who is grinding his fingers to the bone trying to take care of his family, but they've accumulated so much debt and bills behind and pressure of feeding the children and praying for everything and, and doing everything the kids are supposed to do to, to supply for the kids, but you don't have the money to do it, and you just keep digging this hole, this deeper and deeper hole, and finally you say, this weight is too much. I didn't know this is what it would be like. It would be better if I just wasn't alive anymore. It's the weight of a mom who is carrying the pressures of raising children in a home where a marriage is not getting along and there's tension in the home and there's chaos with the kids and there's life pressures and there's all of the things that come along with life that you didn't expect when you first got married and you went on a honeymoon and you were living in bliss and now the pressure has built up so much that you literally cry yourself to sleep and you're just saying to yourself, if this is what you intended for me, I'd rather be dead. That's where we're at. And listen to God's response. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. What is the first thing he says? Go get people who can help. Go find people who can help. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. Find people who can help. Get them next to your side. I will come down to talk to you there. I will take some of the spirit, that's ruach, not the spirit on Moses, the spirit of God. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you and I will put the spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you. Listen to this. So you will not 
have to carry it alone. What is God's response to a suicidal Moses who is done carrying the weight of everything that he has to carry and is literally saying to God, I am depressed and I am angry and if I knew it was this way, I would rather be dead. God says to Moses, get help. Ask for help. Go find people who can help. Why do we have groups? We have groups so you can go to a place where you can connect life on life with people who can help. So you can be known and you can know and be known. You can love and be loved. You can serve and be served. You can find people who can help. Dr. Henry Cloud, one of the most well-known psychiatric doctors in the country, incredible author, follower of Jesus, wrote an entire book called The Power of the Other. And he says, nothing heals temptation, nothing heals lust, nothing heals depression, nothing heals brokenness like other people. He gives these clinical trials where he would give somebody a treatment plan and they would go off and do the treatment plan by themselves and within three to six months they were back into the same junk that they were in before. But then he would not give others a treatment plan and he would say, you need to find someone who's been through this before and found victory. And he would pair them up and his success rate was through the roof. And so he writes this entire book, I'll save you the read, Power of the Other, that literally just says this, a person is more powerful than a treatment plan. Coming from a psychiatric doctor who spent his life in clinics counseling people who were mentally ill. A person is more important than a treatment plan. What did God say to Moses? Okay, here's our solution. Find somebody who can help. The problem is depression does its very best to create a world of isolation and loneliness where you feel like you cannot talk to anybody. That's the lie of the enemy in depression, that you have to be quiet, that you have to hide, that you have to isolate. I, um, I was not planning on sharing any of this. In fact, it wasn't even my idea. My wife came to me a couple nights ago and said, what are you, what are you preaching on? I told her, and she said, you, you should share a little of, of my story. And I was like, are you sure? And she said, yeah. So I'll tell you, um, Ezra's, Ezra's pregnancy was one of the hardest things we had to walk through. Like, I'm not, I'm not I say we. <laughs> I, I was there cheering, go, oh, yeah, you got it, right? Um, no, like, and, and not from a terms of physical. Like, physical is best delivery we, we've ever had, she's ever had, I was a cheerleader. But um, in terms of just mentally, spiritually, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the story. Um, Mother's Day weekend, Anna has a miscarriage on, I think it was Saturday before, it was, it was that, that weekend, and then she's at church on Sunday morning here worshiping, and we're celebrating moms, and it's just, it's so confusing, and then it happens again five weeks later, we, we lose another baby, and then we're, we're asking God, what on earth is going on here? We thought you had a fourth for our family, and then she gets pregnant, and we make it past that like eight-week mark where, you know, it's like, okay, there's a way better chance of this, of this thing, so now let's celebrate it and we put it out there and everyone's rejoicing and we're all excited and then um, a couple months later we get a phone call that says they found trisomy 21 markers in the baby's blood and it's like what like we're like down syndrome what 
Like, and then we start walking through like all of the potential health risks. And we have doc- they're saying, you, you may not want to deliver where you're at. You may want to go downtown where it's a lot safer for you. These babies are incredibly medically fragile. And like this whole world of just pain and confusion kind of, kind of fell on us, right? And yet the challenge was, and this is what preachers don't talk about, right? The challenge was she'd come to church every Sunday, and this is not, this is not on you at all. This is what you should do. And one of the first questions she's answered is like, how's the pregnancy? And we're in like pain and mourning and praying and begging God for a miracle and begging him for healing but yet we're not ready to talk about it because that's an emotionally vulnerable space. And the second you put that out there, then it opens up a whole nother realm of questions that you're not prepared to answer or you're not ready to walk through. So the only thing you can do is just be like, you know, it's, it's good. We're good. We're good. Answer weeks of that and weeks of that and more prayer and more mourning and more pain until Anna got to a space where honestly, and I don't blame her a bit, uh, just got tired of answering the question. And it's not, it's not on any of you. I, I love you all for it. I'm thankful for it. But it's like, what do you, you know, we're not ready to, to let this out. But now it's like, I feel like I'm lying to people and I just, I'm confused and I don't know what to do. So the only thing I can do is like try to avoid the questions now. So then, I start, then we start isolating and then we start avoiding and then we don't, don't begin to put ourselves out there as much anymore. And then that becomes a really dark space of suffering alone and walking through deep, deep pain, and not being able to say anything about it, and yet on the same token, having to put a smile on our face, and you know, like celebrate, and be like, yes, and man, we're excited, and everything else, and then go home, and you know, at night, we're talking about what, what, what if something's wrong with his heart? 30% have leukemia, what are we gonna do there? Like, how, how are we gonna walk through all of this? And we got to this point where it was just, it was so difficult, don't cry, don't you do that, don't you do that. We got to this point where it was so hard that we were like, we have to say something. We have to say something. And I said, listen, like, here's the two scenarios. One, we say nothing, baby's born with Down syndrome. People are going to be like, did you know about this and not tell us? Like, did you hide this? Did you lie about this? I could have been praying for you. I could have been loving on you. Could have been encouraging you and you didn't say anything. That's going to be one. Or the other is, we say it right now. And the baby's born without Down syndrome, and Jesus gets all the credit anyway. There's a miracle that happens, right? But here's what we both knew, and we both got to this place. We have to say something, because suffering alone is too hard. It's too painful. It's too lonely. It's too dark. It's too isolated, and it was driving us crazy. So we, we sat down, and we wrote a social media post together into the whole collaboration thing or whatever, and you know, put a picture of his ultrasound on there. And we did it at night intentionally because we didn't want to have to respond to anything or see anything. And I remember we posted that, went to bed, woke up the next morning, and from that time on, two things happened. One, an incredible freedom flooded our lives. The... <laughs> we, we were able to celebrate Ezra for the first time. Hey, he may have Down syndrome. 
And now you know, and now we can celebrate it, and now we can be excited about it. We don't have to hide it anymore or worry about it or walk through the confusion of it. One thing is we had a tremendous freedom at that point to be free, to to live out the scenario that we were in. And two, the body of Christ responded in such a way that overwhelmed us with prayer, with love, with support, with grace, with mercy. Here is, I guess, what I would say when we talk about being helpless and all of a sudden in your helplessness you isolate yourself and all of a sudden in that isolation you begin to enter into this dark place of avoiding and not talking and not communicating and, and not doing anything and it leads you in the direction of depression. You have to be willing to ask for help. That's God's message to Moses. Moses, quit carrying the weight on your own. Find people, invite them in, stand in the tabernacle. My spirit will agree with your spirit and you can carry the weight together. You can carry the weight together. But here's what you have to do. And this one's on you. You have to let the body of Christ love you. You have to be willing to let the body of Christ love you. You can't fake your way through community. You can't fake your way through church. You can't fake your way through your guy's Bible study or your girl's night out or your get-togethers or whatever else. You have to be willing to ask for help and allow the body of Christ to love you. And I will tell you this, and I am very, very cautious about this. Yeah, you have to answer dumb questions and people say crazy things and everything else, right? But that is like 1% compared to the 99% that show you Jesus in a way you never knew people could that send you emails, that send you texts, that show up and just love and pray and let you know they're praying for you. I'm telling you, the strength that pulled us out of that season was not anything that we did on our own. It was allowing the body of Christ to walk with us through that journey. That's exactly what God is telling Moses to get out of helplessness. If you feel helpless, ask for help. And then third, he finishes here joylessness. How do we combat joylessness? This is the easiest one by far. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 18. I tremble inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me and I shook in terror. I waited quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, Even though the olive crops fail and the field lies empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, our pets' heads are falling off, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. How do we combat joylessness through our salvation? Through our salvation that we have. Luke 2, 10 through 12, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Romans 15, 13, I pray that the God, the God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of of the Holy Spirit. Our greatest joy is not anything that we will attain. 
experience or accumulate here on earth. Our greatest joy is the untouchable salvation that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord and the promise that we will be with him again one day. That's our joy. That's our joy. It is not in what we go through, what we don't have, or what we do have, or what we want here on earth. I'll give it to you this way, an illustration. A friend of mine, when I was early, early 20s, uh, his grandfather died. And his grandfather was super wealthy, bought and sold multiple companies, had a bunch of real estate, and he had two grandkids, and he left basically everything to his grandkids. Kids must have made him mad or something. Um, but he left them a fortune. I'm talking about like never have to work again, your early 20s, never have to work again fortune. And so, um, right, dang, I know, I need a grandpa. Like that. So I go to my friend and I'm like, bro, we made it, you know? Like, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not that guy. But I was like, dude, like, this is incredible. And I remember this. He already had a career. He just graduated. He started his career. He started his life. And I said, what are you going to do with the money? And he said, I'm not going to touch it. I was like, man, that's kind of disappointing. Like, I was in Guys Vegas weekend or something. Like, you could do something good with this thing. And he's like, no, I'm, I am not touching it. I was like, okay, why? I'll never forget what he said. He said, because having all that money brings me more joy knowing I have it in my future than spending it all right now. He said, the, the peace the joy, the, the everything that I have, knowing that I have that amount of money, is knowing that I have it in my future, not trying to blow through all of it right now. The same is true with us. We may say Jesus is Lord and our hope is in salvation, but we put so much hope in a stupid football game tonight at five o'clock, and the amount of people that I know that are going to be ridiculously upset, joyless, angry, flipping over bags of chips and kicking tables that are 49ers fans when they lose, the amount of people that are going to be doing that is ridiculous, right? It's crazy. And yet we say, Jesus is our hope for salvation. But at 9 p.m. tonight, there will be millions of people that are joyless. Because we put our hope in stupid stuff. We put our joy in stupid stuff. And we allow spending now to rob us of the joy we should be saving for our future. That's how we combat joylessness. We constantly remind ourselves that my salvation is my joy. My salvation is my joy. When was the last time you went to the Lord and just said, thank you for salvation? Thank you that I am saved. Thank you that my sins are cleansed. Thank you that I am filled with the Spirit. And thank you that no matter what happens to me the next 50 years of my life, I am going to be with you again one day in eternity. That's where our joy is. We have hope, we have help, and we have joy. 